The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Pinchas Taylor now presents his lecture, Do Jews Believe in Aliens? As you may have noticed, whenever scientists get together and use their technology and their satellites to search the universe for intelligent life, all of the satellites are always facing away from the Earth. We're going to talk today about the scientific, historical, and Jewish approach to why people would believe in alien life. Sound like fun? You guys excited? Let's go. So the possibility of extraterrestrial life is no longer a belief that is exclusive for science, science fiction enthusiasts to fringe thinkers in society. Talk of flying saucers and alien civil civilizations finds itself in mainstream media outlets, and very prominent people, historical figures, veteran astronauts, and some US presidents speak about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Douglas MacArthur, one of the famous generals, heroes of World War II, said that in the future, the future wars that we have are going to be interstellar wars. Veteran astronauts, Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell is someone who is touted in the UFO community as one of the main thinkers who shared his beliefs that UFOs are out there, alien civilizations are out there, and that they're in engaging, involved with the Earth. Not just your tinfoil hat wearing uncle. Apollo astronauts, Mercury astronauts, Gemini astronaut Gordon Cooper, also well known in the UFO community as a believer. US presidents as well. Jimmy Carter on the campaign trail said that he no longer can make fun of people who believe in UFOs because when he was on the campaign trail, he saw one one time. And many of us might think that Jimmy Carter himself came from a UFO, but that's, that's, for, a different, that's for a different day. Ronald Reagan said on several occasions that the thing that is going to make the people of Earth come together is when there's a possible threat from the outside. And Colin Powell, who was working national security with him at the time, was always, whenever he would bring that subject up, he'd always kind of roll his eyes at the little green men theory. But we see that it's not something that's just part of the fringe of society anymore. It's something mainstream, something very qualified, very intelligent people are coming to, uh, coming to terms with, coming to think about. So although UFO technically means unidentified flying object, the word UFO, the, the, the letters UFO, are almost intrinsically connected with thoughts of flying saucers. In the annals of history, several cultures 
contained vague references to sightings of UFOs. And in recent history, they became more widely reported, especially once human beings took flight in the early 1900s. The decades that ensued after that, more people were seeing things in the air that they couldn't identify. And then once the 1940s hit, the 1950s hit, the concept of aliens, flying saucers, this was something that was already a mainstream in science fiction, comic books, all, all over the place, movies. And this was something that was exacerbated slightly in the late 1940s with the Roswell incident, the Roswell, New Mexico, the famous crash or supposed crash where there was something that crashed and then initially everyone thought it was a flying saucer and they reported it was a flying saucer and then the Air Force got involved and they, they sent out reports. Now it's not flying saucers, it's, uh, it's a weather balloon. In the 1960s, that, so that was, that was kind of put aside for a little while. In the 1960s, when spaceflight became a reality and we were sending rockets into space and then finally landing on the moon, the question of is there life out there really hit, really hit home, really hit what people were thinking about. And by the 1970s, with the Vietnam War and the Watergate scandals, when people started trusting the government less, this re-aroused interest in the Roswell incident. Because if the government is hiding stuff from us, right, Watergate scandal, Vietnam War, all sorts of scandals going on, maybe they're hiding something else from us, other things from us. And this is where the interest in the Roswell incident started to getting fire again. Recently, an author, Leslie Keene, brought out that 90% of reported UFO sightings wind up having a, a reasonable uh, reason where they came from, whether they turn out to be weather balloons or lightning flares or lightning balls or aircraft or other assorted mundane occurrences. But 10% never get officially classified as something. And she says we have to at least keep the door open for the possibility that they could be otherworldly. A great number of leading scientists in our day and in the past generation have said that there has to be intelligent life out there. There simply must be intelligent life out there. The first one to really push this idea, really popularize this idea, was astronomer Carl Sagan. And in his idea, the reason that it's so probable, that it's just got to be, is because in the evolutionary model of creation, where life just happens to spring up if the conditions are right, that that's sort of the way nature goes. If the conditions are right, life will be created. Then extraterrestrial life is an inevitability. Because the idea is that with all of the millions and billions of Earth-like planets out there, and when we say Earth-like planets out there, we mean that it's the proper distance from its star. It's a planet out there that's the proper distance from its star, and the conditions would be comparable to Earth to keep it in that Goldilocks zone, that just right, just enough heat, just enough, just enough cold to, to maintain life, that there's so many out there that there's got to be life out there. Because if life randomly, naturally comes about if the conditions are correct, then there's simply got to be life out there, the scientists will stress. 
starting with Carl Sagan. The estimated amount of Earth-like planets in the universe, any idea how many the estimate is, the latest estimate? The estimate of the amount of Earth-like planets in the universe right now is 100 billion billion Earth-like planets in the universe. Not planets in the universe, Earth-like planets in the universe. Just to give you an idea how big that number is, 100 billion billion. That's 100 Earth-like planets for every grain of sand on planet Earth. That's a lot. And if life randomly evolves without any sort of divine intervention, without any sort of plan and purpose, if the right stuff in the soup is there, then life will sprout out. The scientists, beginning really emphasized by Carl Sagan, say that it's inevitable that somewhere out there, there's extraterrestrial life. Now, the reason that people think, well, not only life out there, not some bacteria, but advanced civilizations, advanced creatures, what would be the reason that they would think that they're advanced, that they're not just like us or below? The reason that they would think that they are significantly more advanced is because, let's say, on planet Earth, going by the scientific model, life begins about 500 million years ago. And so, according to their worldview, if it started here 500 million years ago, let's say it started on another planet a million years before that, or a billion years before that. It's an older planet. So if it started on that planet a billion years before, or even a million years before, well, then the creatures on that planet might be a million or a billion years more technologically advanced. That's where the scientific mindset of why a scientist would believe in extraterrestrial life. SETI, an organization that is out there which is dedicated to listening for signs and signals of contact from any sort of outside influence, said that the, the potential for intelligent life is there, but that nothing is ever, nothing's been tangible at the moment. And so this led to a very interesting point called the Fermi Paradox. Because if there's so many planets out there, and so many that are potentially fitting for life, right, statistically it's very probable, then where is everybody? That's called the Fermi Paradox, named after the physicist in the 1950s that named it, Enrico Fermi. He said if there's so much life out there, if the universe is teeming with life, where, is that? Where are they? Where is everybody? And so there are really two camps in the scientific community that discuss how to answer that question. Where is everybody? So there's one camp, smaller camp, that says, where is everybody? The fact that we haven't come in contact, we haven't seen anything, haven't had any real exposure to anything, must mean that there is no life out there, certainly not intelligent life out there. Maybe that's, the, that's, that's one possibility. In fact, uh, as Donald Brownlee, the professor of astronomy at the University of Washington says, almost all environments in the universe are terrible for life. 
Because there are other factors. He says there's only the Goldilocks zone, only Garden of Eden places, in his words, only Garden of Eden places like planet Earth can actually have life. Because it's not just the right, the right planet with the right conditions far enough away from its star. If we think about how much goes into life on Earth, we'd be astonished. So our planet is turning 1,000 miles an hour. Turning around takes 24 hours to, to make one complete revolution around. So if we were spinning a little bit faster or a little bit slower, the conditions wouldn't be appropriate for life. If our planet itself was just a drop closer to the sun or just a drop farther away from the sun, we'd either be too hot or too cold to have life. If those conditions were correct, but the moon wasn't its size and its distance from the Earth, which replenishes and refreshes the, the, the tides, life wouldn't be able to happen. If those things were in line, but we didn't have a giant planet in the middle of our solar system called Jupiter, which the gravity of Jupiter, what Jupiter does, because it's so big, is that all the meteors, or many of the meteors, that are flying through space Jupiter, the gravity of Jupiter sort of sucks them in, and it and, and it's acts as a protector for Earth. If, if Jupiter wasn't there, the Earth would be bombarded by meteors. And if Jupiter was a little bit bigger or a little bit closer to us, well, then Earth would be pulled by its gravity out of the life zone as well. And if Jupiter was a little bit smaller or a little bit farther from the Earth, we'd be sucked into the sun. So it maintains the balance and let's say all, of, all those things in our solar system were exactly as they are, but our solar system was in a different part of the galaxy. Well, if our solar system was in a different part of the galaxy, we are in a perfect spot in the galaxy for life to be, advanced life to be, to be had. And let's say, okay, everything was fine. We're in the same spot, same place in the universe, but our galaxy was in a different spot amongst other galaxies. We're in a relatively sparse, relatively rural area of the universe, if you will. So even if everything was just so, but our place in the galaxy, our, our galaxies placed amongst other galaxies was incorrect, was not where it was life would not be able to happen on Earth. And so it shows, this is one of the things that Donald Brownlee says, it's not just finding a, a right planet from a right star. There are a lot of factors that go in, and most places, even if they're an Earth-like planet, not really easy to have life over there. So that's one camp. The other camp thinks of different reasons to answer the Fermi paradox. Again, remember, what's the Fermi paradox? If there's so much potential for life out there, where is everyone? And so the other camp, one of the mainstream ideas in the scientific community, where's all that life? Well, they come up with different reasons why we haven't encountered life. What are some of those reasons? Some of the reasons that are stipulated, again, this is in the scientific community, perhaps advanced civil civilizations get so advanced that at a certain point in their advancement, they wind up destroying ourselves. How many times with our level of advancement have we been concerned that you know, one, wrong, one wrong move and the whole planet is destroyed? So maybe, they, maybe they've gotten so advanced that they've destroyed themselves already. That's one theory. Um, 
One, another theory is maybe super intelligent life has already been to Earth, but it was before any sort of human written records. It was a, it was a long time ago, but, and we don't have the records. There's another idea that maybe the entire galaxy has already been colonized, but Earth is like in this rural area. You ever take a road trip and you drive through these really remote areas in the United States where there's like trees and fields for, for, for miles and miles, and there's like a house, right? So imagine like Earth is, or this solar system is kind of like that in the universe. So again, these are all theories. One, one of the main theories that, that is advanced by uh, from one of the New York universities, Machio Kaku, one of the great physicists in our generation. So he says that perhaps the people, not the people, perhaps these beings from the other planet are so advanced that to visit little old primitive planet Earth doesn't really, make, doesn't really interest them. He says, imagine you're driving on a 10-lane superhighway you have big things going on in your life. Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, you're not going to pull over off the highway to go visit the anthill that's on the side of the road. You have no interest in that. And so he suggests maybe they're so advanced and so, that they don't really have much interest in us. At the end of the day, this is all speculation. There's no empirical evidence that we know of anyway. Uh, that has been advanced. But so again, this is all speculation in the scientific community. Interesting topic to think about. Now, what about Judaism? Where does Judaism fit in all of this? So one of the interesting things, by the way, before we, before we jump into that, one of the reasons that we, in the scientific community in particular, it's so emphasized the push is the mainstream view is that there's alien life out there. Because the backbone of science right now is the theory of evolution. That if you put the right stuff in the soup, there doesn't have to be any divine hand in there. Just input proper materials, output life. And so that is one of the reasons why it's so appealing in the scientific community to believe that there is a universe teeming with life because it's a convenient caveat to God. It's a convenient way to say, oh, look, as long as you input the right materials, the output will be not factoring in that maybe there's a divine hand involved in what took place in the, earth, in the planetary development of Earth. So what has Judaism taught regarding extraterrestrial life. So let's first talk from a Jewish perspective about the role that human beings play in the creation process. You and I, the human family, what role do we play in this universe? The Talmud writes that the congregation of Israel, the Jewish people, once complained to God. They complain to God, God, you've forsaken us. You've left us behind. You've abandoned us. And the Talmud records what God's answer was. God's answer was, my daughter, 12 constellations I've created in the, in the sky. 
And in every constellation, for every constellation, I've put 30 hosts. And for every host, I've put 30 legions. And for every legions, I've put 30 groups. And for every group, I've put 30 um, cohorts. And for every cohort, I put 30 camps. And for every camp, I've put 365,000 myriads of stars in the sky, all for your sake. God's answer to the people was I've created this entire universe for you. You are the pinnacle. You are my treasure. So the place of mankind in the cosmos has been discussed since the the early days of rabbinic tradition, of the early rabbinic authorities. And the general consensus, whatever is out there, is that the most distinguished and ultimate purpose of creation is the human being. And this becomes even more interesting given the fact that it seems to be the opposite view of many of the religious ideologies that were present at the time. In Christianity, for example, until the Renaissance, the lowliness of man, the insignificance of man, the worthlessness of mankind was the trend. Judaism always, from the beginning, spoke about the glory of mankind, mankind being the pinnacle of creation, mankind being endowed with the divine spirit. In the Torah, the creation of mankind is done differently than any other object in creation. Every other thing in creation is described as God speaking that thing into creation. God said, let there be light. God says, let there be plant life. God says, let there be sun, moon, and stars. God said, let there be animals. But when it comes to the human being, there's a difference in wording and theme that's expressed. The difference is, says that God gathered dust of the earth, and what did he do? He blew the breath of life into the human being. Everything else spoken into existence, the human being breathed into existence. What's the difference? So these Zohar, the mystical texts, say that the difference is in the air expenditure that comes between speaking and breathing. The air expenditure that comes out, the air that you breathe out when you're speaking is very superficial. You see people that can talk and talk and hours and hours and hours. Maybe you know some of those people. And they never get tired. It's like, wow, that's impressive. So speaking as the air that comes out is very superficial. When a person breathes very deeply, if you do that for five minutes, you'll pass out. And so the difference in speaking everything else into creation, but breathing the breath of life into human beings... What the Torah is telling us, what Jewish tradition is telling us, is that mankind has a special connection with God. We come from the innermost aspect of God. We are the innermost desire of God. Everything else that's in the universe spoken into existence. Its existence is tangential to the human being who was created last and who this whole universe is for to uplift Mankind is described as being created in the image of God. Well, last time I checked, God doesn't have a nose. 
God is not physical. And so what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Our sages teach being created in the image of God means having free will, the capacity to make moral decisions. Free will is not choosing between chocolate and vanilla. A lot of us think, oh, free will. Most of us, we all have free will, but most of us don't even use our free will on regular circumstance. We just kind of run on autopilot by our nature and our nurture. When you choose chocolate over vanilla, it's not your free choice. Either you have some sort of natural proclivity that you like chocolate better, or your mom or your grandma served you chocolate your whole life, and that's what you're nurtured, that's, that's, that's what you enjoy because they're used to it. So most of the decisions that we make are not free will decisions. Free will means that even though my nature is guided in a direction, even though my nurture guides me in a certain direction, I still ultimately have the choice of how I'm going to act. I can think about my thoughts and redirect, even though we're not just input-output machines. We're not walking computers that are victims of circumstance, that are guided just by whatever robotic programming we had. We have the choice. We can go against our nature and our nurture. This free will decision of not being subject to the influence of anything else, that's godly. That's what it means, our sages teach, to be created in the image of God. Many of the sages discuss the fact that the universe was created for mankind who expresses free will. It says even when the sun, moon, and the stars were created in the, in the Torah's text, what does it say? God set them in the firmament of the heaven. Why? To give light upon the earth. They're there for you. Whatever is out there has some sort of connection to make human life possible. We are talking about Jupiter before. Who would have thought Jupiter out there was, would be helpful in the maintaining of human life? It's all there for us. So what have the Jewish philosophers said in regards to extraterrestrial life? So in Judaism, consciousness is not limited to Earth and not limited to human beings. The great medieval sage Maimonides, the Rambam, says that even the planets themselves and even their orbits have a degree of consciousness. The universe has consciousness. What he says is that they literally can recognize God. Again, what that recognition means to us who have human consciousness can't really relate, but that they have consciousness is not up for debate. So one of the medieval sages quotes a verse from the Psalms. We say it every day in our, in our prayers, multiple times a day. Malchutcha, malchut, kol olamim. Your kingdom is a kingdom over all worlds, from the Psalms. And so one of the medieval thinkers, Rabbi Chazdoi Kreshkash, says that it's possible to believe that when, God, when it says God's kingdom is over all worlds, in theory, it could be talking about other worlds as well, other physical worlds as well. Another possibility, another early sage, considers the idea, and he cites, a ver cites an idea that's brought in the Talmud, 
that God travels through 18,000 worlds before he gets to this world. Now, most texts will say that these 18,000 worlds are talking about spiritual existences, spiritual realms, but Rabbi Chazdoi Kreshkash, one of, the, one of the medieval sages, says we can't negate the possibility that this could be also be referring to physical worlds, and there would be nothing wrong with that. Rabbi Kreshkash's student, Rabbi Yosef Albo, he strongly disagreed with his teacher. He said, what would be the point in having creatures out there somewhere else on another planet? What would, what would be the point in, in, the, in, the, in the scheme of creation that we know that the Torah describes, how would, what, would the, what would their relevance be? One way to answer that, though, and perhaps Rabbi Kreshkash's answer to that is in the same way that you don't know that how every little creature under the ocean, some, we, we, how many species in the world have we not even discovered yet on planet Earth? So some, some animal crawling around at the bottom of the ocean, it's all there for us, all there to make life possible for us. We don't necessarily know how it all fits in, but big deal. We could still know conceptually it's here for us. So, so there's, a, there's a life on another planet. Okay. It's there for us also. We don't know how and what and what. Big deal. So again, one says open the door to possibility. One says close the door to possibility. Then in Rabbi, um, Rabbi Pinchas Horowitz of Vilna, a great 18th century Kabbalist in, in his work, Sefer Habris, writes very interestingly about what extraterrestrial life would mean. And it said that there is the possibility of life being out there. He discusses that there are different worlds, different realms. But the only caveat, whatever is out there, the only caveat is that those creatures, whatever, whoever they are, would not have free will. Because that's something that is unique to human beings from the Torah standpoint. And so whatever they are, they could be very... Remember, don't forget, in our tradition, angels don't have free will. When we say don't have free will, we're not talking that it necessarily has to be a lowly creature. The angels don't have free will. In many ways, remember, Judaism doesn't focus so much on the angels. They're in our tradition. We certainly have them. But the focus isn't there. Why? Because angels are, again, they're a mechanism. They're, they're a means to an end. They're messengers that have a purpose. But they can't transcend their own being. They just do what they were pre-programmed to do. But the human being who can go beyond what they're programmed to do, who can go beyond their own experience, that's where our focus goes. The human role in creation. The human role in life. So angels, again, they're there. It's good. It's part of God's system. We don't know all the ins and outs, but they don't have free will. And so, in truth, what would be the difference if somewhere out there, there was some being, some creature that was physical, that also didn't have free will? In fact, Rabbi Horowitz in his Sefer Abris brings a verse from the book of Judges. He says, there may actually be a verse directly in the book of Judges 
that points to, that hints at the idea of life on other planets. There's a verse in the Song of Devorah which says as follows, Cursed is Meros, cursed are its inhabitants. So the Talmud asks the question, what is Meros? One of the viewpoints, one of the ideas in the Talmud, what is Meros? It's a planet, it's a star. So cursed is Meros, cursed is its inhabitants. He's open to the idea that that might be an open, an open door, an open revelation of extraterrestrial life right there in the, right there in the, in the in Tanakh, right there in the, in the Torah, not in Torah, in, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible. So, cursed is Meros, cursed is its inhabitants, that Meros is a planet, the inhabitants are the people on the planet. It could be an open... So, again, there's no, there's no definitive conclusion as to whether yes, whether no. It's not something that is touted as something that's particularly um, pertinent, and it's not like a core focus in our tradition, in the same way that, that angelic life is not. In, in our modern times, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was asked on several occasions, in particular, there was Dr. Velvel Green. Dr. Dr. Green was a professor emeritus at the University of Minnesota. He was one of the original participants in NASA's exobiology program, meaning finding life outside of the Earth. And when Dr. Green became religious, became more observant, he started questioning himself. Is the search for extraterrestrial life, is this, is this type of work something that I should be involved with? Like, well, how does it fit with the Torah? How does, how does this all, is, is this something that an observant person maybe should be investing their time? Is it a waste of time? Is it something, what it, so he wrote a letter to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe encouraged him to continue the search. Keep looking. And the theme behind it, the idea behind it was, why limit God? Don't say there can't be limit. Go look, because everything that's going to be discovered only allows us to appreciate the glory of God even more. So continue, and encourage them to continue to look. Before we open up the door for questions, I just want to end with, uh, with a thought perhaps how we can uh, kind of tie it all together. So to put it succinctly, Judaism is open to the idea of extraterrestrial life. We are open to the idea that there perhaps could be life outside of the earth. The one caveat being that those beings will not have free will. That's something unique to human beings because we're created in the image of God something unique that the Torah says that we do. But something practical that we can get from that is at any time in your life that you feel confined, that you feel that you're a victim of circumstance, that you feel like you can't escape the life that you've led until this point, instead of 
just blaming up. Oh, it was because my mom didn't love me enough. My father didn't love me enough. I had a nasty boss. I didn't have good teachers. Certainly all of those things play an influence on our lives. Our nature and our nurture are very strong. They are programmed into us. But all of us should know and be encouraged by the fact that we are human beings, that we are created in the image of God, that each one of us has a godly core inside, and we don't have to be confined. We don't have to be shackled by our circumstances. Whatever it is that happened in our life, we can choose to be different. We can choose to end the pattern. Say, well, my, my parents were this way, and their parents before them were this way, and their parents before them were this way. I'm just kind of a link in that chain. You don't have to be. You have choice. You can choose to be godly. You can choose to go outside your comfort zone. And our tradition teaches that every person that uses their free choice, that does one small act of, of conquering themselves, transcending themselves, uplifts not only themselves, but uplifts the entire universe as well. Thank you very much. All right, so I think we have some time for a few minutes of question in the back. The question was, what exactly are we looking for? Because at being from planet Earth, we're kind of looking for life and existence, and things that are kind of like us based on the tools that we have. Is that the, is that the so that, that's absolutely right. And, that, and that's one of the limitations in, in really in every area of science or every area of thought is that you can only kind of look within the context of what you already know. The, another interesting question that maybe we'll do next year is some scientists or some, uh, some uh, in, in philosoph philosophers as well in our generation talk about, well, maybe it's not extraterrestrial being, maybe not life on another planet, maybe we're talking about interdimensional beings. Maybe all these things, maybe it's, maybe it's something from another, ooh, that's a good topic for next year, right? Um, so again, we're not sure what it is. The que we have to look, I, the only thing that we can do from, from, a, from an earthling scientific standpoint is look in the way that we, that we sort of know. I asked my uncle, my uncle is, um, was the electrical engineer for the shuttle. He was working with NASA for about 40 years. He just retired recently. So I asked him one time, like, what, what are, what are we? It's basically the same question. What, what are we? And he said, one of the limitations that we have is that, and this, this is built into every system. We have already a structure of what thing, how things are supposed to be and how, and okay, who says we're looking for carbon-based life? Who says it has to be carbon-based? Right. He says, that's true. It's true. So when we think of what could be out there and how it could be out there, one of, one of the, um, one of the, one of the other reasons, that, one of the other answers of the Fermi paradox of, you know, that there's so much life out there, where is everybody? One of, one of the suggestions is exactly what you're asking. Well, who says we have the adequate technology to detect it? What, what is it that we're, that, we are, that we're detecting anyway? What are we trying to detect? So, very good question, and yeah, that is, that is one of the limitations of, in the scientific community. From, from our vantage point, so one of, the beauty, one of the beautiful things about having the Torah 
is that we're looking at things from what we believe is well, God handed us this, this document. Now, that's not only a document that is essentially night vision goggles. We live in a dark world. This provides the light. This provides us the ability to see things clearly. This is the objective view of reality. And so from a Torah standpoint, we're, we're open to the idea. We don't have to have any communication with anybody. It's, the door is open. And uh, when we find something, it'll, it'll only be something that can uh, uplift the glory of God as opposed to anything else. Yeah, that's a great question. The question, I'm just going to repeat it for the, uh, for the sake of the camera. Uh, would it be incompatible with Torah to have another free-willed creature out there? So human or other? Well, human not. I mean, if, if, we had, if it was some human from the future, let's say, who invented time travel and is now living on... Uh, Neptune or something. So a human being, it would, that wouldn't be an issue because human beings have free will. Um, but that is something in our tradition that is, that is unique to the human being. A again, when, when we talk about the Torah, a lot of times we, we tend to view the Torah as a mixture of a history book, of religious morals, of culture, like, like an amalgam of those types of things. The, the traditional, in particular, the mystical view of the Torah is almost as like a graphic user interface. Like if you're a computer programmer, when you press the number four on your computer at home, on your laptop, it's not like a typewriter. Back in the typewriter days, when you press four, the little thing goes and a number four is stamped onto the, onto the page that you're typing on. But when you press number four on your laptop, it's not sending a four in any sort of tangible way. It's, it's encoding and embedding uh, all sorts of different codes and electrical impulses to create this image on your screen. But that's, even that four is not really a four. You ever open up a file, uh, of like, a, like a video file or a picture file on your computer, but you do it accidentally like in Microsoft Word, and it, it just comes up with a bunch of like weird symbols so that really is what the picture that you're looking for is. You just don't have the right mechanism of, of viewing it. So we view the words of Torah, the letters of Torah, the combination of letters of the Torah as a graphic user interface, the graphic user interface, the computer program, if you will, of the universe. And so if the Torah says that something unique to human beings is free will, that's something that um, at least as far as I can understand, is something unique to humans. I, I want to I also just emphasize another interesting point that you brought up. Said, how do, what if we found another, another being out there that had free will? How would we know that they had free will? Because there's a debate amongst philosophers today, secular philosophers today, of whether free will exists in human beings whether that's like a real thing. So it's not something that's openly apparent. Like I have a sign that says, hey, I'm a free-willed being over here. This is something that we really only know from inherited tradition, that the human being is a free-willed entity. Because again, there's plenty of philosophers that want to eradicate any sort of morality and say, you're just, you're just a victim of circumstance. You are just an input-output machine. And so if, even if we found life out there, how would we know that they had free will? So that's, that's another kind of thing to think about. I just want to close on this point, and I'm happy to, to talk to, to anyone who would like afterwards uh, for a little while. just want to close on this point, because they're giving me the sign that, 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 we're, that we're done. The reason that extraterrestrial life 
the discussion of extraterrestrial life is so interesting is because it can only be one of two answers, and whatever answer it is, it's kind of mind-boggling. There's only one of two answers. Either we're alone in the universe, or we're not alone in the universe. And whatever, what, whatever answer it actually is, it's super interesting to think about. Have a great rest of your retreat, everybody. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.